Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Rath. I'm Manish Rath. I'm an attorney at the law firm Keller and Heckman here in Washington, D.C., and I'm grateful to all of you for joining us today. Thank you. And we've got an exciting program for a couple of reasons. One, this is the beginning of our eighth year of doing the OSHA 3030, and that makes it about our 85th or 86th episode. And another reason is that's exciting about this episode is that we're going live for the first time via Zoom with a video conference feed, as well as the slide deck. That's fantastic uh, for, for the opportunity to interact with all of you. Uh, I'm also grateful that I'm joined today by my colleague, Taylor Johnson. Taylor is uh, one of our attorneys in the Washington DC office and one of our attorneys in our OSHA practice. As I said, I'm Manish Rath and Taylor Johnson is joining us today. Taylor, thank you and welcome to the OSHA 3030. Well, thanks for having me, Manish. It's a pleasure. Well, we, as I said, have been doing this for a full seven years. We just hit our seventh anniversary last month and all of our prior episodes are, can be found on our website, khlaw.com. You can find them at khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030 or OSHA 3030. And that, that goes back to all of the topics we've covered over seven years, many of which are highly relevant to this day. This is a program that we do every 30 days, and we try and cover a new developmental issue in OSHA law. Uh, and we, we try to, to make sure that we always include practical takeaway items for you, the, the members of the OSHA 3030 community. And for the past few years, we've also been rebroadcasting this as a podcast. So you can subscribe to this program uh, on your favorite uh, podcast media uh, like Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud, Spotify, uh, even iHeartRadio, I believe. And, uh, and, and subscribe and make sure that if you finished an episode, make sure to also like it so that it can be uh, more easily searchable by others. I will say this, this is a program that we do complimentary for clients and friends of Keller and Heckman. And the only thing we ask in exchange is when you get an invitation by email to register for the next episode, please forward it on to three other people in the safety and health community or in-house counsel in your office of in-house counsel, either at your organization or at an organization uh, that you know, so that the good word about this program can continue to spread so that we can do this for hopefully another seven full years yet to come. So Taylor, we've got a great topic today. That's right, Manish. <clears throat> and we're gonna cover a lot on today's program. Um, first, we're gonna outline the facts and conditions at Smithfield, South Dakota plant uh, that was subject to the general duty clause citation, which is the overarching topic of today's program. Uh, we will discuss the calls for OSHA to issue an emergency temporary standard, as opposed to the various guidance documents that the agency has issued. Uh, break down the specific allegations in the Smithfield plant citation. We're going to review the general duty clause, the section of the OSH Act that Smithfield was cited under, specifically analyzing the feasible abatement requirement. Uh, this is one of the four elements of the general duty clause. And of course, as we always do, uh, it wouldn't be a 3030, uh, OSHA 3030, if we didn't conclude with a discussion on what employers should do. And Manish, I think you know, we need to start today with just the timeline and the facts of the Smithfield uh, meatpacking facility in South Dakota. I think that's right. And Taylor, it's important for everyone to try just for a moment to close their eyes and remember the times as they were developing in late February, early March, 
late March, early April. At this time, news about coronavirus was developing, it seemed, almost every day or every few days. What we understood about where it was experiencing outbreaks, uh, what kind of outbreaks we were experiencing, uh, the kinds of outbreaks that we were experiencing then as opposed to the community uh, transmission that we're seeing today, and, uh, and just the knowledge about the virus itself uh, and the symptoms that, that at first were identified and as that list of symptoms continued to evolve, it's important for all of us to, to bring ourselves back to March of 2020. Uh, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Smithfield Packaged Meats Corporation, one of the largest meat producers on the planet and certainly in the country, and this is a company that puts food on the tables of households across the country and in, indeed the world. And this is a vital industry. It's a vital company in a vital industry uh, for, keeping, for keeping the economy going and keeping people fed. Well, people were going to work every day through all of this in the Smithfield packaging plant or pr uh, pr production or processing plant in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And on March 24th, for the first time, the South Dakota Health Department was notified of a positive case for coronavirus, and it involved a person who also worked at the Smithfield Sioux Falls, South Dakota plant. And this is important because March 24th is the first case involving a worker. That is not the same as to say that this was the first case in the plant. I know how the media covers stories and I know how the, the legal profession covers cases. And I wanna be clear that this is a case where a person was diagnosed as positive or confirmed positive with coronavirus. And that person also worked at that plant. It wasn't a short time thereafter by April 11th that 369 cases of confirmed coronavirus had been identified of people who also worked in the plant. And the following day, Smithfield promptly shut down its operations at that plant while it evaluated and implemented interventions. Uh, overall, my understanding is that to date, the numbers I have are that about 929 confirmed cases have occurred at the plant. Uh, and a small, small fraction of those involved hospitalization, about 49, and two, there were unfortunately two fatalities. All of this is very unfortunate and it's heartbreaking. These were people who were coming in and, and doing their job and doing the best they could. Uh, and and these, these were some of the earliest cases and this was one of the earliest outbreaks in the country. Uh, I think that's important to keep in mind. So Taylor, on the basis of this outbreak, the Centers for Disease Control conducts an investigation? That's right, they did. Um, you know, a lot of media started covering the plants after the first reported case on the 24th. And this prompted a CDC investigation. Now, it, it is important to note here that the CDC is not an enforcement agency, uh, but rather saw this as an opportunity, um, as you noted, Monish, in the early stages of, of the COVID-19 outbreak to develop an understanding themselves of how coronavirus spreads in the workplace. And here's what they found. Most importantly, they found that the highest attack rates um, for the virus occurred among employees who worked less than six feet from one another on the production line. 
uh, from there, contacting common areas such as locker rooms and cafeterias facilitated the spread um, among employees in different departments. On April 3rd, uh, the plant began installing physical barriers on the production line. And the CDC report states that the installation of these barriers resulted in a transmission rate decrease. And we emphasize uh, the word decrease here for those of you watching on the slides, um, because the barriers did not result in a transmission rate cessation. Um, that's an important point that we will cover later in the program. Manisha, Smithfield was also involved in a lawsuit related to conditions at a plant in Missouri, I believe. Well, that's right. And to understand why these two different locations may have uh, experienced uh, both the CDC investigation because of an outbreak, as well as this lawsuit for its Missouri plant, uh, one must understand the nature of the meat processing industry. These are, as you say, Taylor, workers are working very close to each other to make sure that the very high rate of production continues apace. And so they're, they're side by side for long periods of time uh, in, in close working conditions. Uh, a, an organization called the Rural Community Workers Alliance brought a suit against Smithfield Foods Incorporated in Missouri uh, in federal court. And they alleged essentially that the employer had not taken adequate steps to prevent the spread of coronavirus. Uh, Smithfield promptly filed a motion to dismiss, uh, arguing that, that it had indeed taken all reasonable steps to prevent further spread. And uh, the plaintiff's claims, I think, were, were instructive in the case that we find ourselves in front of today in today's OSHA 3030, which is a, 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 a case involving uh, the, the South Dakota plant. So the plaintiffs had alleged that the company had failed to comply with CDC and OSHA guidance. If you look at the CDC and OSHA guidance, the plaintiffs argued, you can create, for example, a punch list of recommended tasks that an employer can take. And if Smithfield had failed to perfectly implement any or all of them, then the plaintiffs would have argued that that was a violation under not under occupational safety and health law, but uh, as a theory of law, a nuisance claim, and uh, that that that's the method by which they intended to prove their case. Uh, for example, they alleged that Smithfield had failed to maintain proper distancing amongst workers, had failed to provide breaks for employees to wash their hands, uh, while, by the way, processing meat, they were supposed to take breaks and wash their hands according to the plaintiffs. Uh, they, the plaintiffs alleged that the employer had failed to implement a sick leave policy that wouldn't penalize an employee for missing work, even if the missed work was for coronavirus cases, uh, and to uh, alleged a failure to implement proper testing or symptom screening and contact tracing procedures. Uh, the theories that the plaintiffs had argued were that these, these alleged failures constituted a public nuisance and constituted a breach of the employer's duty to provide a safe workplace under a generic tort law concept of an implied duty to provide a safe workplace. I should point out to you that that is not a concept of law that you will find formally recognized in case law in, in almost any state law 
none that I've seen or, or in federal law. There is, of course, the statutory mandate under the Occupational Safety and Health Act, which is why we're here today uh, to talk about the South Dakota case. So the court, well, Smithfield filed a motion to dismiss on that basis, and the court immediately dismissed the plaintiff's claims, granted Smithfield's motion to dismiss on the basis, as I can speculate to a certain extent, that, that these concepts of law don't apply for employers uh, on the basis of a imperfection, uh, in a, a alleged imperfection uh, between their compliance procedures and OSHA and CDC guidance. That's right, Manish. And as COVID-19 cases continue to spread you know, to various workplaces across the country, um, entities, including the AFL-CIO, began to call on OSHA to do more than just issue the guidance documents um, that we've discussed. These entities wanted the agency to issue an Emergency Temporary Standard, or ETS. In fact, the, the AFL-CIO petitioned OSHA to issue an ETS on March 6, um, a, a request that the agency denied. And there was also language in congressional uh, COVID-19 legislation that would have mandated the agency issue an emergency temporary standard. Uh, this also did not pass. So in light of this, various states, um, again, as, as COVID began to spread, uh, began to take action. Um, California in particular has, has acted recently. Um, on September 9th, California OSHA cited 11 employers for not protecting employees from COVID. And the company to receive the highest financial penalty um, of $51,000 um, actually was a poultry processing facility. Um, Cal OSHA cited uh, the facility for not ensuring employees were physically distanced at least six feet apart in the processing area and for not installing uh, plexiglass or other barriers between the workers. Then on September 17th, uh, California um, also passed legislation to ensure timely notification of COVID-19 cases at workplaces. And Virginia actually became the first state to pass its own emergency temporary standard. Um, this requires employers in Virginia to ensure that employees observe social distancing and they must, um, as opposed to guidance, they must develop formal notification and return to work policies. But yeah, I think Phelan, keep in yeah. mind that these all are developments in the past few weeks only. Right. And uh, by May or June, the AFL-CIO was complaining that OSHA should issue an emergency temporary standard. In May, the uh, Workforce Protection Subcommittee called OSHA in to testify as to why it was not issuing an emergency temporary standard through its uh, Assistant Deputy, uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Labor in charge of OSHA, the head of OSHA, Lauren right. Sweat. And so, so by May or June, there, was, there were questions about why OSHA wasn't issuing an emergency temporary standard. And as you note, by September, by August and September, states are starting to roll out their own uh, methods of dealing with this, including uh, in California, attorney general actions in addition to Cal OSHA's uh, actions. And this, the citations you mentioned on September 9th, uh, there were uh, several of them throughout the state, all, almost at once, uh, totaling about $500,000 worth of citations. Uh, and as you mentioned, Virginia became the first state to actually go ahead and implement an emergency temporary standard. There are now three, California being the third of them. So, so now we go back to Smithfield's South Dakota plant, the one we had talked about to begin with, our case for today. 
In addition to the Centers for Disease Control, OSHA sends compliance safety and health officers to Smithfield, South Dakota plant around April 20th and begins an inspection that lasts for many months, about five months. And uh, at the end of the inspection, OSHA issues Smithfield a citation, a singular citation after five months conducting an inspection. One citation, it's under the general duty clause. They issue a penalty, a proposed penalty amount of $13,494. They make an alleged description of a violation that allegedly Smithfield had failed to implement necessary procedures for preventing the transmission of coronavirus at the Sioux Falls, South Dakota, uh, Smithfield plants, and they implement a recommended abatement order. Uh, now, this just happened. This citation was issued on September 10th. Here we are, September 23rd, 2020. And so there's not a lot that we know about it. We have not seen the citation. And I don't, can't even tell you at this stage whether or not Smithfield has formalized its notice of contest. What we do know is that uh, the OSHA press release cites OSHA's guidance in the meatpacking industry. And uh, amongst the elements in the meatpacking industry's guidance, which we've talked about in prior OSHA's 3030 this earlier this year, OSHA calls for the implementation of physical barriers, such as divide, plastic dividers or strip curtains, distancing employees where possible, at least six feet, putting markings on floors or elsewhere at workstations to denote where the distanced location workstation might be, uh, creating work rules for the duration and type of contact that employer, employers expect of employees uh, or should expect of employees, installing hand washing stations or sanitizers with, with uh, uh, alcohol-based sanitizer of at least 60% alcohol, a concept called cohorting where an employer, OSHA proposes that an employer keep workforces in small groups that don't interact with other groups so that if there is an outbreak, it would hopefully be limited to only elements of a specific cohort and wouldn't break out across the plant is the hope under that guidance. Uh, cleaning and disinfecting procedures uh, and screening employees for symptoms and implementing testing, uh, for example, temperature, uh, as well as notification procedures. So this is what the meatpacking guidelines that OSHA published call for. And we believe that these are the metrics by, or I should say the standards by which OSHA thinks that Smithfield allegedly was deficient. We believe that this would be also the elements of OSHA's proposed abatement order for Smithfield. And we believe because the first positive case at the Smithfield, South Dakota plant was on March 24th that, and the inspection was commenced on April 20th. We have reason to believe that they are alleging violations prior to one of those two dates. So we're looking at alleged conditions, at least before April 20th, possibly before March 23rd, that OSHA would be asserting were violative of the general duty clause. Uh, well, as I said earlier, we don't know whether or not Smithfield has formalized a notice of contest, but we do know that they issued a press release stating that Smithfield's belief is that the citation is wholly without merit and that Smithfield does plan to contest it. I believe that's credible. 
I do believe that an employer in this circumstance uh, is going to be very likely to contest the citation just generally. So Taylor, the citation was under the general duty clause. This is a portion of the act itself, the statutory enabling act, the Occupational Safety and Health Act enacted in 1970 that allows OSHA to promulgate specific standards, but as sort of a catch-all, if you will, it also has a clause in the act called the general duty clause, which requires that employers uh, maintain a workplace that is free of hazards so far as is achievable. I think it's probably a good idea to, to discuss what the, the general duty clause elements are that OSHA has to establish when making a general duty clause case. Absolutely, Manish. And at the outset, I think it's important to note that all four of these elements must be met. Um, and they're such that an employee, um, so employee exposure to a hazard um, must be present. The alleged hazard must be recognized. The alleged hazard caused or was likely to cause, and this is a key language that we'll, we'll get, get into later, caused or was likely to cause death or serious physical harm. And then most importantly, um, in the context of, of this program, a feasible method exists to correct the alleged hazard. And we're, we're going to analyze uh, certain elements of the general duty clause here in the context of the recent Smithfield citation. And Manish, I believe we're starting our analysis here with element number two, that the alleged hazard must be recognized. Yeah, let's just look at, at the last three, starting with the idea that there has to be a hazard that's recognized either by the employer or by the industry in which the employer uh, operates. And that's, that's a key element that OSHA has to establish. If the hazard is one that OSHA believes is a hazard, but is not well recognized by the industry or isn't recognized by the employer as a hazard, uh, OSHA cannot make a general duty clause violation case. So here we have the agency issuing a citation alleging failure to follow what OSHA thinks would be uh, necessary steps to manage a hazard. And I don't know how they've articulated the hazard yet, but I think that's a critical first step. Let's just say for now, for the conversation that we're in, in, in this afternoon, that the hazard being alleged is workplace exposure to coronavirus, not just coronavirus. And I think that's an important point, by the way. Uh, if, if you believe that the hazard OSHA is alleging here is workplace exposure to coronavirus, and you believe that the first case at Smithfield was, I think, March 24th of 2020, and that OSHA conducted its inspection on April 20th. You have to believe that workplace exposure to coronavirus was recognized by the employer prior to one or both of those dates. Uh, but I, I find it interesting that, Taylor, you remember we talked about Congress, the Workforce uh, Protection Subcommittee had called OSHA in to testify through its assistant uh, deputy secretary it's Deputy Assistant Secretary of Labor in charge of OSHA, Lauren Sweat. And the Honorable Ms. Sweat testified uh, as to the agency's view of the utility of emergency temporary standards in circumstances like coronavirus. And she said in, in plain English, what she said was, well, look, this is such a rapidly evolving circumstance that we believe the agency can achieve more for workers' safety with greater agility by issuing guidance. Specifically, what she said was that OSHA quickly pivoted with the development of this, this pandemic, OSHA quickly pivoted to focus intensely on giving employers the guidance they need. 
And she said that on May 28th. And I think it's important because she acknowledges that employers need guidance from the agency, which I think is, is a fair statement on her part. She said, I believe that the current approach allows the agency the needed flexibility, the current approach of issuing guidance to industry would allow the agency needed flexibility to be responsive to a virus that we learn more about each day. This is again on May 28th. One example of OSHA's nimble approach is meatpacking, she said in testimony. OSHA worked with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the U.S. Department of Agriculture to provide meatpacking plants with comprehensive guidance to continue operations. Why is this important? Well, because here you have an inspection that commences on April 20th in the meatpacking industry and results in a citation that the agency believes there was a violation of a recognized hazard. Yet, it wasn't until April 26th that OSHA issued a guidance to employers that OSHA acknowledged employers need agency guidance. And the inspection was conducted six days before that guidance was promulgated. And she further says that she believes that the agency acted with nimbleness to respond intensely to give employers the guidance they needed. So she believes that April 26th was a very rapid date to deliver a meatpacking guideline. And yet they commenced an inspection against a meatpacker on April 20th, six days earlier. And I think that that is an incredibly important point uh, for OSHA as it tries to establish that the hazard it alleges was recognized by the industry. so, so the timing, I think, of, of the alleged violations is incredibly important because we, we emerged evolutionarily from a time where if you go far back enough, there will be a time where we all agree we were not concerned or taking steps about coronavirus. Certainly November, December, we'd all agree. Certainly by June, we'd all agree that employers around the country were taking steps to manage the transmission of coronavirus. So somewhere in that span, there is a spectrum of increasing awareness and increasing recognition of the hazard. And OSHA is gonna have to prove that they were at the right point of the spectrum on April 20th when they commenced their inspection or on the dates that they allege that a violation took place, that that, that Smithfield was somewhere on the spectrum sufficient to say that they had now emerged into an era where the hazard was recognized. And I think that's going to be a challenge for the agency. Taylor, why don't we talk about the third element of the general duty clause that OSHA will have to establish? Sure. So this is that the hazard caused or was likely to cause death or serious physical harm. And as you can see from the statistics here on the slide, you know, while we recognize that 25.6% of employees at the Smithfield, South Dakota plant contracting COVID and almost 11% of all South Dakota residents who have been tested positive, um, who who have been tested, have tested positive. You know, we recognize that these are large numbers, but it's important to note here that the question at issue is one of serious physical harm or death. And to that effect, 5% of plant workers were hospitalized. Um, That's 48.15. 0.15, excuse me, 0.15 of all South Dakota residents uh, were, were hospitalized. And 
also um, 48 of the 929 cases at the plant, um, so roughly 5% um, of, of those workers at the plant were hospitalized. And then perhaps uh, sorry most about importantly- Sorry Taylor. So 5% <laughs> of the plant workers and 0.15% of the community of South Dakota. That's or, right. Or South Dakota's estate. That's right, Manish. And, and 0.02%, so two out of the 929 cases at the plant um, resulted in death. So again, the standard is caused or likely to cause death or serious physical harm. And I, I personally think that it's at least arguable uh, for Smithfield to push back on the notion that COVID-19 in the South Dakota plant was likely to cause death or serious harm. Um, the condition of simply being COVID-19 positive is not in itself serious physical harm or death as evidenced by the, uh, by the last three statistics on the slide here. Well, yeah, I think that's an excellent point, Taylor, that at least for the second half, which is in the disjunctive, OSHA can prove either that workplace coronavirus caused right. serious harm or death, uh, or that they can alternatively prove that it was likely to. So at least as to that second option, they, they don't have a strong statistical case for likelihood. Um, and that all of the coronavirus cases weren't serious. In fact, a very, very small percentage were serious. Uh, so that leaves them having to, I think, establish that, that the hazard caused the cases that did involve serious harm or death. And that's why at the very beginning of our conversation today, I noted that when you look at the challenge that OSHA has, I think it starts with trying to define what the hazard is. <laughs> Uh, because now we see why it's important to define the hazard properly and accurately. If the hazard is workplace exposure to coronavirus, then they would need to establish that workplace exposure to coronavirus caused those serious health cases or caused the two deaths. They can't merely establish that coronavirus caused the serious health cases or the two deaths. So the final uh, element of the general duty clause, and I, I find this one to be perhaps the most intriguing in the context of this case, is the idea that OSHA has to establish that there was a means of feasible abatement available to the employer for the alleged hazard. In the instant case, OSHA has a guidance for the meatpacking and processing industries and it was published, as I noted earlier, on April 26th. Whereas the citation commenced on April 20th, and I believe that they're alleging violations prior to that date, or else they can't, you see, if you point to violations on September 10th, you can't say that they caused any of those serious health cases, and you can't say it caused those deaths, because those deaths and serious health cases precede the date on which OSHA alleges the violative condition. So necessarily, I intuit that I think that they must be alleging viol alleged violative conditions prior to uh, the April 20th citation, or maybe even prior to the first case, uh, in order to establish that third element that Taylor, you were just talking about, which is the causation element, or likelihood to cause. And so, so that's where this feasible abatement idea it becomes a very intriguing one, that OSHA would have to establish that there were feasible means of abatement and pointed to a guidance that they published six days later may not be helpful, but it may stand as a measure of what employers could have done had they the benefit of the 2020 hindsight. Uh, so when you talk about those uh, elements of that guidance, the physical barriers, distancing, 
uh, all the things we've talked about, disinfecting, washing hands, face covering, uh, then, then you have to establish if you're the agency pressing a case under the general duty clause, the agency would have to establish that those interventions would have abated the hazard. And as you, Taylor, you noted earlier, they may have resulted in a reduction. We can speculate that they may have resulted in a reduction of cases, but I think it's incredibly difficult to establish, much less to even believe that an employer imposing all of those requirements would have fully abated these hazards, these alleged hazards. And I think it's also important to note that when you look at other industries that had implemented many of these same uh, suggestions or guidances with a greater degree of protective value, let's just take a look at the healthcare industry. The healthcare industry since maybe late February, certainly by early March, had implemented better than just face coverings. They had N95 protection. They had gowns. They had uh, coverings for shoes, hair, clothing. Uh, they had ventilation systems, which were rigorous to healthcare standards, uh, distancing protocol, et cetera, face shields, uh, gloves, hand-washing stations, and hand sanitizers everywhere. Uh, so they had implemented all of these elements that I just described with a f and, and testing of patients and, and coworkers uh, with a very rigorous protocol and they had all of the data. Uh, and yet, some, some, several hundred thousand healthcare workers in North and South America have contracted coronavirus. Many have died, hundreds of healthcare workers. Uh, so with all of these abatement measures employed and perhaps far more rigorously in the healthcare uh, industry, and yet there's still uh, a large number of cases I think OSHA will have a very difficult time of suggesting that the meatpacking guidelines, while perhaps reductive or mitigating, would have abated these hazards. Uh, and, and if they can make that case, I'm gonna be very interested to watch how this case unfolds and see how they, they go about doing so. Uh, with that said, Taylor, since our time together is getting on, why don't we wrap up as we always do with a brief discussion about what employers should do in light of the Smithfield case. And I'll point out that there's another meatpacker who's also since been cited, uh, I believe their name is JBS, and that, as you mentioned, the California citations have all been implemented, and so we can expect to see more enforcement action going forward. So, so with that in mind, let's talk about what employers should do. Sure, Amana. So in light of that, employers should continue to follow CDC and OSHA guidance, uh, other agency guidance, state and local regulations, and most importantly, monitor as guidance evolves. As we've noted in prior 3030s, this guidance can change sometimes daily, and it's important to make sure that employers are, are staying on top of that. Yeah, and Taylor, you know, they, they, you got to keep a record of what you've read in right. the CDC's website, because when it changes, you can't find the old copy. That's right. It, it, it gets erased from their website. And as we've seen in this week's news, CDC, the CDC has changed its interpretation of whether or not, uh, and to the extent to which coronavirus is transmissible uh, in an airborne media, uh, which I, I believe refers to the aerosolized rather than droplet media of transmission. And so when they change their interpretations on questions as profound as that one, uh, it's important to, to note uh, that monitoring the stuff daily is half the battle and memorializing your research uh, is really critical. And Taylor, as you know, we've been, we've been documenting uh, the guidance that we cite to uh, and, and trying to keep our own copies of them because you just can't go back to the website 
uh, the CDC and find it again necessarily. That's right. Uh, I think to begin with, it's important for every employer. I've said this in all of the coronavirus episodes we've conducted this year uh, to conduct a hazard assessment for coronavirus transmission at your workplace, given the operations that your workers are engaged in. And then to develop a written control plan, which starts with the hazard assessment and goes through the list of personal protective equipment, practices, distancing, uh, hand sanitizing, the schedule for sanitizing of equipment and contact surfaces that are shared, uh, policies about leave, policies about pay for leave, policies for, for quarantine and when to return to work. All of this should be in, I think, a written control plan, symptom checking at the beginning of the shift. Uh, and, and when a written control plan that exhaustively covers all of the controls that you intend to implement in your workplace has been put together in a written control plan, uh, I think it's safe to say it should also cite to those sources that, that you're premising your conclusions on. Uh, and, and that you keep a, a memorialized copy of those source materials so that in the event that they change, you've got your own copy to rely on. That sets up a record for what you think is the right method for controlling coronavirus at your workplace and why. And that would be, I think, a critical step if an employer finds itself in the same circumstance as JBS or Smithfield finds itself in today. That's right, Manish. And also to wrap up, it's important that employers train their employees on distancing, disinfection, work practices, and also implement screening and notification procedures. Um, and when we say notification procedures, we mean contact tracing, uh, being able to trace um, employees who've been in contact um, with uh, known cases of coronavirus or have traveled to certain locations. And I'm a big advocate, Taylor, that's a great point. I'm a big advocate that when you train your workers, you not only keep records of the training materials, but the method by which you tested their comprehension. Uh, Taylor, you got the last word on this episode of the OSHA 3030. Thank you again for joining me. Uh, we, we continue to put out information in between episodes of the OSHA 3030 on Twitter, at Rath uh, We're on, all on LinkedIn, as well as our firm's workplace safety and health page on LinkedIn. Uh, this episode, as with all of the episodes for the past few years, is rebroadcast as a podcast. Please remember to subscribe, but also after you listen to it, remember to like or rate the podcast so that it's more findable by your peers. Uh, you can find that podcast on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple's podcast app, on Stitcher, and on Google Podcasts. And we'll continue to expand the podcast media by which you can find the OSHA 3030. Just search on OSHA 3030 on your favorite podcast and you'll find it. Uh, our next OSHA 3030 will be at 1 p.m. on October 21st. Always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. Our sister programs here at Keller Heckman, the Tasca 3030 and Reach 3030, are coming up soon, October 14th. And from time to time, we also have one called the FIFRA 3030. Uh, so stay tuned for that or go on our website to find more information at khlaw.com. On behalf of my colleague, Taylor Johnson, on behalf of all of us here at Keller and Heckman, and on my own behalf, thank you all for participating in today's OSHA 3030. I look forward to seeing you all next time when you get the invitation. Don't forget to forward it to three more people uh, in your organization or elsewhere. And until we see you then, stay safe. <laughs>